Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham. Once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had the life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, we're going for a drive, but not the after-dinner kind. That's right. Joining me from Bad Religion, Greg Graffin, and it is awesome. We'll get to that in one second. But first, if you want to get in touch with me, Head over to the email address, turnedoutapunkpodcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. You can also support it by heading over to wherever you're subscribing this thing from and uh, subscribing to, or wherever you're listening to it from, I should say, and subscribing to it and rating it. You can also support the show by heading over to patreon.com slash turned out of punk. And thank you, thank you, thank you to all you people that do do that over there and support the show that way. Or you can support the show, um, you know, uh, just, but just by listening. Thank you very much for listening. I really do appreciate that. Speaking of support, though, just this show would not be possible without the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans, who uh, said a few years ago, you know, we like what you do, Damien. Just don't do it out of your own pocket. And they helped me cover the cost of doing this thing. And believe me, there are weirdly costs with a free podcast that are, <laughs> who would have thought that? Um, but, uh, and so I really do thank them for their support on that thing. And one day, when we can really freely travel again, uh, House of Vans will hopefully come back and I will be able to do live podcasts with uh, those events, which is, oh man, some of my favorite times. Some of my favorite times. Speaking of favorite times, my favorite times are coming back because Fucked Up is heading out on the road. The band I play in will be heading out uh, in the fall with Faith No More for a few shows. Uh, you can find those dates over on the internet. <laughs> I forget where they are, but there are, there are some shows out there. Google fucked up faith no more tour. And I'm sure those shows will come up. Uh, then fucked up. will also be going out in January with, uh, David comes to life's 10th anniversary. We, we will be playing the record a lot. This that's <laughs> funly. It's finally kind of dawned on me that I'm just going to have to fucking play this record. Like, like dozens and dozens of times for the next year shit all right well come see it <laughs> it'll be tight by the end of it it might be loose at the beginning but it'll be really tight by the end of that whole thing holy jeez that just dawned on me right now okay um and uh fucked up's also going to be reissuing david comes to life over there at matador records and uh we will also be putting out our 90 minute long song 90 plus minute long song, I think, actually. Maybe it's only 89 minutes. Anyway, You're the Horse. It's going to be coming out on vinyl on Tank Crime Records with our big buddy Scotty Karate doing it over there for us. And uh, it's coming out on all these wacky colors of vinyl. And you can find those over there on his website, which I believe is tankcrimerecords.com. Tankcrime.com. Once again, there, there are search engines for this that are probably a lot more reliable than me. Uh, so check out that stuff. Okay, on to today's show. Today on the show, it's a legend. It's the it's legend himself, Greg Graffin, joining me, which is a huge thrill for me because, like, I think like anyone that writes lyrics, 
in punk rock. He is a, a big influence and, you know, someone that I've never had the chance to talk to. Like I tell him right off the bat, like we're on tour, never, never talked to him there, you know, just never, never had the opportunity to do this, you know, which is kind of why I invented doing this podcast for myself because I just wanted to punish people and it's not really appropriate when you're playing shows with them to do it. So I finally get to do it today with Greg and, oh, this is awesome. Huge thank you to my buddy, Christina, for helping Tristan set this up. Uh, also huge thank you to do what you want author, uh, Jim Ruland, uh, Ruland, who wrote a incredible book. If you have not read this book, strongly recommend reading it. It is a great history of the band and providing me with like a, a really good jumping off point for this conversation with Greg. Greg, of course, also has his own book that coming out later on this year, and he will be back spoiler for a part two when that comes out. But, uh, we wanted to make sure that this happened. Um, and unfortunately Greg had something come up, had to hop in the car. So we hopped in the car with him. You know, you're, you're getting the sedan and we're driving with Greg and chatting, and this is a fun conversation. There are some uh, audio issues because, sadly, reception is not great on certain parts of the highway. But don't worry, we, it cleans up well. And once again, we listen to demo tapes here. We listen to we listen to practice sessions. We listen to, to jam tapes. You know, we we know not not jam band tapes, but I mean, but like you know, jam sessions. You know, practice demos. You know, we listen to. I'm just saying, we fidelity is is relative. In the world of punk rock, Bad Religion is going to be on the road with War on Women and Alkaline Trio. So get your tickets accordingly. That's one hell of a bill. And it is selling out. So find those dates on the internet and uh, get those tickets. Um, okay, I'm not going to ramble on anymore. This is a fun one. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Greg Graffin on Turned Out a Punk. <laughs> Greg, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, uh, you know, I've, I've always uh, appreciated people who who want to talk to me. I think it's a great privilege, so I should thank you for having me on the show. Well, as I was just telling you off air, we have actually been on tour together in Australia one time, and I was just too intimidated by you because I think you're kind of the lyricist lyricist in a lot of ways. Um you know, and so I was too intimidated to do this in person. So I'm glad I have the the distance that modern technology provides to give me the courage to really punish the shit out of you about nerdy uh, stuff. No, it doesn't. It doesn't feel punishing yet. And I don't think uh, I don't know why that is. You're not the first person to say they're intimidated to, to talk to me, maybe because they think that, you know, I can't strike up a normal conversation. It has to be something about academics or something but that's far from the truth <laughs> well i think it's i think it's obviously the the lyrical weight and i think it's also like you said like the academic reputation and yeah and i just think it's also the legends that we tend to build up in our minds about people without like you're saying or off air like until you meet a person you don't really know what they're like so you, you tend to build people up after you know experiencing them on on various forms of media over the years yeah yeah, I've got people in my life that I've admired, but I never felt intimidated. Um, I guess what I was afraid of is asking them something so elementary yes. that they would just think like, 
they would just think I was an idiot. That's what I thought. <laughs> well, actually, there's an actor, a comedian, John Ross Bowie, who was on uh, the TV show The Big Bang Theory. Uh-huh. Um, and he was on this podcast, and he told an amazing story about when he was in college, just reaching out to you randomly and you showing up on his radio show and bringing down all these records, including into the unknown and talking about that record and just kind of like hanging out and just being the most down to earth dude. So I kind of knew coming into this thing, it was going to be chiller than I expected back in Australia. <laughs> cool. <laughs> uh, but I got to start I this. Oh, sorry. Go on. I didn't know. I didn't remember that. Um, I don't remember the situation you just mentioned. Uh, it would have been, I think it's like early 90s, maybe late 80s. No, it would have been the early 90s. Um, and he was up in college and oh, okay. cool. wrote you an email and you were just like, or not, probably not. Well, I probably would have made, maybe in an email. I got to I gotta yeah. check back on the episode. But anyway, you were like, yeah, I'll, I'll come down and came down to his radio show and just hung out with him on his college radio uh, yeah. show. I think I do remember that. Now that you mentioned it was at college. <clears throat> was He wasn't an actor then, huh? No, he was just kind of starting. I guess he was still trying to find out where he was going to go in life, but he wound up, you know, getting into the Upright Citizens Brigade and then wound up, you know, getting onto a bunch of different TV series over the years. An incredible guy. He wrote actually a a musical about the Ramones doing End of the Century with Spectre. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> um, but I got to start this thing off the way they all start off, Greg, which is how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Well, it's really good that you're asking me this because um, I actually, this is a long story, so I don't, I don't, you know, I have a tendency of not forgetting the question, but it seems like I drift, but I'm actually just answering it the long way. So we love the drift on this show, Greg, do not worry. <laughs> so bad religion, you know, celebrated a 40 year anniversary and that was momentous enough, but then we had Jim Ruland write a book about it, and Jim wrote a fantastic book called Do What You Want, The Story of Bad Religion, and that book came out last year, and his book is so encyclopedic that he covers 40 years in very succinct fashion. I mean, he did a fantastic job, but what it didn't contain was sort of the more... Um, personal aspects because he had to cover so many people involved in the 40 years of bad religion you know so uh that offered then i got an offer to write a book on my 40 years in punk and i just turned in the manuscript it'll probably be coming out next year and and so your question this is the long-ended way of getting to your question i told you i would get to it but <laughs> <laughs> the that's what i had to really think about personal you know it was a personal story that i wrote and i started at the beginning like how did i get into this crazy mess <laughs> so mm -hmm. um i actually it's pretty fresh in my mind because even though it sounds weird that you would do research on your own life you know i don't my research was not looking at past articles and trying to see what other people said about me, which I couldn't care less, quite frankly. That's my research was digging through my own memory and going through my family archives and really putting together a story about how I, you know, what were my feelings? How, why did I get into this? And it ends up that it wasn't as dramatic 
as most people, certainly a lot of the punk fans would like it to be, you know, I, you know, I never, for instance, I never really got into, you know, hanging around with, you know, the hoodlums and the drug addicts and that, that wasn't, it wasn't glamorous for me, that stuff, I, I guess it scared me. So I stayed away from it. Um, but believe it or not, it's just a, it's a real simple interpersonal story that got me into it. First of all, I, I was kind of a lonely kid, you know, who moved to Los Angeles and I was lucky enough to, uh, I was lonely because, you know, I moved to a brand new environment far away from my upbringing in the Midwest. And I was having a hard time finding friends, but we were lucky enough to listen to Rodney on the rock, uh, on the radio station. Uh, so it really radio and the music got me sort of focused on punk music and I just loved the music and it was so, uh, otherworldly to what I've been used to listening to. And it, you know, punk music is what really got me hooked, but I was by no means part of the scene. I was only a 14 year old kid sneaking, you know, staying up too late, listening to Rodney on the rock. His show was on around midnight, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I got to hear all the music from England that Rodney would play. And I got to hear all the music from our own backyard in Hollywood, all the punk bands that were coming up in the late seventies. And around 1980, I finally decided I want to, I want to be part of this thing but I had no way of knowing how to do that. So the first act of rebellion was I, I got dumped by a girlfriend and, you know, she was kind of trendy and just to, just to say, fuck you to her, I cut all my hair and I dyed it black. And like, that was, <laughs> that's the most, as my mom put it, my first act of rebellion was taking my hair two shades darker. <laughs> it wasn't exactly wasn't exactly like the punk rockers you know uh legendary tale of of going punk but you know i i i then befriended people who were really into the music not really into the lifestyle so i started going to clubs and these were older kids from the high school and some of them you know moved on to college ahead of me so i was i was just there in at my school with the only kid with short hair and, and, you know, I'd wear torn jeans to school. And, and then I met Jay Bentley and we had a couple other friends. Brett Gerwitz was a few, a couple years ahead of us, but we started just hanging out together and Jay and I started going to Hollywood a lot because he had a truck and he would drive almost every night into Hollywood. And we'd be, we formed a band in 10th, when I was in 10th grade. And that was the only band I've ever been in. And that's bad religion. Uh, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, how you didn't hang out with the hoodlums or, or anyone like in that early part of the scene type thing. But I remember actually reading an article you wrote for, I think it was details in the nineties about being young and a punk. And that article has sat with me my whole life. I think it was details. I was trying to find it online. I could not find it for the life of me, but just about how punk was like this weird 
experience where you were exposed to a lot of things super young and i'm trying to remember the gist of it because it was i read it at like 15 just kind of really when i was getting into the punk scene and it was just such a it was such an interesting article and something that now later in life i i really reflect on because you do bring up a lot of interesting points in that do you remember that article at all yeah i think it was called anarchy in the 10th grade that's what yeah that might have been it now I you're gotta, stretching it though. If you want, if you expect me to remember any details, no, of I the don't. Details articles. <laughs> no, details but I just details of the details. I don't remember. <laughs> well, I just find it like so fascinating, and then something comes up time and time again with different people on the show that punk is this such a weird cultural nexus where you do have younger people hanging out with older people. You do have young kids being exposed to things way too young in some cases, you know, and in many well, cases. Yeah, it's taught, I mean, it's definitely taught me to be cautious when I hear people say things like, oh, that's too young for his development. I'm mm. not, I'm not sure what that means, but you're right about, you know, kids being exposed to a lot of pretty gnarly stuff at young ages. That's right. Yeah, I've got a parent. I'm like, sorry, I've got a parent. I'm a parent now with three kids. And my eldest is just at the age I was when I started going to shows. And there's no way I'd let him go to a show by himself now. Really? Well, I just, I just, I don't know what it is, but I just, uh, I just look back at some of the stuff and I don't know, it just feels, maybe I'm just more of a helicopter parent than I'd care to admit. But at the same time, I just feel like, I don't, I just, I can't imagine him going and doing that stuff at his age. And I don't think he has any interest in it. So I'm not denying him something. Yeah. You got to have a lot of, got to have a lot of trust in, in your kids in order to do that for sure. And I think there's a lot less trust in society in general hmm. so that, you know, you don't trust that anyone would be looking out for him if he was in trouble. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know. My mom, my mom just said, you guys, can go and do what you want but you gotta be you gotta if you're not coming home you get you better call me and tell me where and where you are so there were no cell phones there was just you had to abide abide by the rules of the house you know or don't bother coming home <laughs> always carry a quarter yeah <laughs> she would make sure of that um going back to before you kind of got into punk were you what kind of music were you into beforehand like were you a fan of like you know the beach boys or prog rock like i'm, I'm fascinated by kind of like wh what early stuff you were into yeah i think you'll really enjoy uh the book then because that's i spend a lot of time talking about influences and the fact that i came from a musical family mm -hmm. and uh i started out in choirs I, I was a quiet, a choir boy, <laughs> but not in a, not a religious sense A really contemporary music choir by the time I was in grade school and I got scholarships for it. And uh, that's sort of where I developed my sense of harmony and, and song structure and stuff like that from music teachers. And uh, we would sing contemporary songs from the, from the radio. So, you know, hit song, hit radio songs in the seventies were really amenable to choral arrangements, believe mm. it or not. Mm -hmm. So uh, we learned a lot of uh, stuff, you know, the stuff you would hear on the radio, songs by Stevie Wonder and songs by James Taylor and, uh, you know, Simon and Garfunkel and stuff like that. And the, we'd do choral arrangements for them. But uh, when I sort of created a musical identity, it was with my friends 
before punk, we were very um, kind of like um, advanced music students. We were definitely music nerds. Um, and we had album collections, you know, of, of progressive rock albums from Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Yes. And of course, one of my earliest favorites who's still a favorite to this day. And it's funny, I'm just driving through Cleveland. He's getting inducted into the Hall of Fame this year, Todd Rundgren. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I like Todd was like one of my uh, early musical, um, I guess you'd say uh, I studied his music so much that in a sense, he was a mentor. So would you have been aware of like the New York Dolls kind of in this time period too, just because of his association? No, had no understanding of his production work, except the fact that he produced um, Grand Funk Railroad. He produced a, a radio song. He did one of the best productions of Locomotion by Grand Funk. And he did uh, We're an American Band by Grand Funk. Songs that you'd hear on the radio, but I had no idea that he produced them at the time because I was just a kid. Yeah. No, I was more interested in his uh, albums. And uh, like I said, we had formed sort of this this nerdy group of friends who liked progressive rock and uh, Todd Rundgren albums were uh, in those days were kind of experimental and uh, progressive. Well, you know, given like that, you're, you know, worked so much with Jim Mankey uh, in the beginning, were you a fan of Sparks at all? Had no knowledge of Sparks until I met Jim Mankey. Okay. It's amazing. Like how, you know, they're like obviously not a punk band, but it's just like they, it's just so many connections to punk rock, you know, from Steve McDonald playing in the reunion lineup or, you know, obviously all the work he did with Target of Demand and yourselves and other punk bands. Like it's it's such a, a fascinating intersection in that band. Yeah, well, there are connections being made all over the place. And the interesting thing about, you know, and when you ask someone what their influences are. A lot of them, I mean, it's easy to lie, right? But mm -hmm. if you want to know the true influence of someone, you have to ask them, you know, where did you get the idea for that song? Or where, you know, where did that come from? And if they're honest with you, you'll recognize that even though, for instance, I'm very honest about my relationship with Jim Mankey and that he produced that album, but I had no awareness outside of our relationship on that album i had no awareness of who he had worked for or why he was in the position to produce an album so you know it's really interesting he was part of my development an important part but he wasn't part of my influence the sphere of influence is just based on what i listened to and what i was exposed to and i spent a lot you know, 100 pages in the book talking about that well, when you, when you finish this book, we got to do this part two, because believe me, this is, uh, you know, uh, yeah. my favorite thing to do is kind of comb through the footnotes of a book, kind of. Um, speaking yeah, of which, in, in, in Jim's uh, book, uh, Do What You Want, which is, you know, also a fantastic read, obviously, as well. You know, it, they really, Brett really makes a point that the germs were a huge key early influence on him. And I was just wondering what early punk bands were kind of drawing you in early on? Yeah, well, obviously the germs were pivotal. Uh, and I can remember, you know, again, it's kind of an interesting story how the germs came to my awareness. 
I listened to Rodney on the rock on the radio, as I said, and he would interview Darby crash, but Darby was kind of a mess. You know, Darby wasn't like someone that you would look up to. Like I, I'd run into Darby at Okie dogs and he'd want to steal my French fries. You know, he was just like a, he was a, a mess and a slob, you know, but he was, he, but he had this gift of lyricism and he was this gifted lyricist, I should say. And uh, my friend Brian Kaz, uh, Chasm, is that his name, Brian? It was, I'm so, sorry, I don't remember exactly, but he was a friend of Brett's also. Okay. And Brian, Brian bought this album and he brought it over to my house. And he said, the New Germs album, you got to listen to it. And I'm sure that's how Brett heard it too. Brian Kasim. <laughs> anyway, it's, it's in there somewhere. It'll come out. But okay. it was, he was the keyboardist in Brett's first band. That's why it's interesting because Brett had a band before Bad Religion. Mm-hmm. And Brian was the keyboardist. And he said, you got to hear this album. It's got frightening lyrics, you know. So the germs, yeah, they were very influential because their lyrics were so good that you real it made you realize, hey, you can listen to, you know, this hardcore punk music, but there's more to it than just the more than the sound. There's the meaning of the words. And that's that always made us really motivated to write good good lyrics. And uh, you know, other bands from that time were mostly bands that I would record because Rodney on the Rock, Rodney Bingenheimer, always encouraged his listeners to get out your tape recorders, he would say. Get out your tape recorders. You're not going to hear this music anywhere else. You're going to hear it right here on my show. So he encouraged us to stick our tape recorders up to the speaker. And that's where I heard, you know, so many bands that you would not have known if it wasn't for Rodney and they weren't really that influential uh, in the, you know, in the long sort of long trajectory of punk in Southern Cal, but they had an immediate impact on me. Bands like, um, you know, the guys who wrote uh, planes versus trains, for instance, uh, I think they're the, called the human hands and uh, bands like the gears. Yeah. You know, the gears are, they have, they put out an LP, one of my favorite, most influential LPs uh, from that time period, the gears rocking at ground zero, it's called. And, um, uh, you know, the early Dickies uh, albums were incredible. They were mostly EPs that Rodney would play. You know, you drive me AP Big Gorilla and, uh, um, uh, what else? Then, the, of course, Dawn of the Dickies was their big major label debut. I loved that album. And a lot of people didn't like it, but it was really influential to me. Um, you know, so anything that showed kind of an experimental quality that was trying to push the limits of the genre, even in those early days when the genre wasn't so well defined, I liked the stuff with you know, that was experimental. And what I mean by that is, for instance, uh, both that album, Dawn of the Dickies that I just mentioned, and uh, an album from England by Sham 69 called Hersham Boys. I wanted to ask you about that. You're one of the few yeah. people that likes that record. And I love that record so much. Right. And the reason I think I was drawn to it is because these guys weren't afraid to put piano on there and good, have good arrangements on 
on there. And, you know, the first Bad Religion album had piano on it, mostly because of those albums. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of stuff that really attracted me. It's funny you say that about all these bands that, you know, might not be as celebrated in sort of the punk annals but are just incredible like one band i was going to ask you about is the band modern warfare a band that i can find virtually no information about but you're on a comp with them early on and i know they were part of that early la scene did you ever play with them or see them what do you remember sorry you cut out sorry for a second there i i said i don't have any memory of that but do you know any songs they have this they have a song called nothing which is on their second seven inch which has it's like an image of the cow man cutting off the human cow's head which was later used <laughs> by every krishna band ever yeah um, but uh they are they have this song called nothing which like you're saying it's it's not necessarily the most straightforward punk song ever it's like kind of weirder in the approach like i don't know it's just it's and it's just so angry and there are this band that you know there's just like you're saying there's just so much great stuff coming out of southern california actually california period you know at that time it's just ridiculous yeah there was a lot of well there were so many studios don't forget you know studios were i mean in hollywood there was like a studio every two blocks you could have a studio and a lot of them were holdovers from the from the 60s and 70s and they were trying to stay in business and there were more bands than ever so there were a lot of great recordings with you know really good quality studio recordings of these early experiments in punk and i think that's partly why la shines really bright in the story of punk and that story hasn't been told yet well it's funny you bring up uh, legendary holdover studios because i got to ask you about one of the most infamous studios ever from southern california mystic records did you guys ever record at mystic uh i don't think we ever recorded there you're on one of the and mystic comps one, right I think. yeah that's one of them that's one of those in uh you know in west holly or in hollywood proper i believe where they had their studio mm -hmm. but we may have done something on their compilation but we you know recorded at a place called studio nine which was uh you know again just an independent studio i don't recall ever recording anything in mystic but i yeah. could be wrong you know, there are a lot of a lot of recording sessions that you know i don't remember the details about it's th that board apparently was the board Led Zeppelin used. That's the story about the Mystic board. It doesn't sound like the records that Led Zeppelin put out, but apparently that's the same board. Yeah. So I mean, I'm not. Yeah. Where was Mystic? Uh, do you remember where it was? Uh it was near the. Uh, uh what's it called? The cafe. Um. Ah, uh, I'm, I'm blanking cafe on the name. Cafe de Grand. Cafe de Grand. Sorry, that's it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think we ever recorded it in there. It certainly seems like a studio where, you know, it's kind of, it, it was a very, yeah, it might be explained, sorry, why your records sound sonically a little bit different when on those <laughs> Mystic comps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, Brett's, stu Brett's studio was very close to that. You know, the first uh, West Beach, mm. West Beach was very close by. So we had, by the time 19, by the time 1985, 86 you know we never had to go anywhere else to get good sounding studio uh get good sounds in the studio because brett had refined his work to such a degree he started his west beach recorders at that time 
and we we had our sort of a home recording studio at his place. One one uh, band that I wanted to ask you about back then is the Circle Jerks. Like obviously, you know, Greg being in the band for a time later on, but I mean, just in terms of the Keith always kind of mentions you guys as being a uh, a key. Uh, like a, a little brother band early on in, I think it's described in the book. He says that on the Rodney on the rock, even. Um, it's just, you know, we, we got a lot of shows with the circle jerks. So, mm. you know, I thought I always envied the circle jerks. I talk a lot about it um, because Greg Hetson, you know, and I were close friends and uh, yeah, the jerks were our, our older brothers in the sense that, they were successful as a touring act and we were not. And, uh, you know, I always looked to them for advice, even though they were not the advice giving types. <laughs> um, I would definitely model my expectations based on what the circle jerks were doing. And uh, they accomplished quite a bit in the eighties that I really envied. So you know, even though Keith and I are two different types of singers, I always admired him and looked up to him as being, you know, someone I'd like to emulate. Not in our personal lives, but, you know, in, a, in our professional uh, style on stage. Another band I wanted to ask you about from that time period is Red Cross. And because you're obviously on the public service comp with them, you're on a couple other compilations with them, uh, including Desperate Teenage Love Dolls. Were they a band that you guys interacted with a lot back then, too? No, the only connection I had to them was Greg Hudson. Yeah. So, I mean, so both Red Cross and the Circle Jerks, you know, it, it triggers a memory for me that I'll share, which is most bands didn't admire Bad Religion. They kind of looked down on us. We didn't feel like we were admired. We felt like, um, you know, these bands, you know, we were from the Valley. We were from the San Fernando Valley. And they kind of used that against us. <laughs> yeah. So I just, you know, it's, it's regionalism. It's, it's all petty bullshit, but it's, it's kid stuff. And those bands had nothing to give to us because, you know, except there was a musical connection, but they never had, we, you know, especially me as a lead singer, I had nothing to offer them. So I wasn't part of their clique in any way. And that goes for Keith too. Keith, I think, you know, he always liked me and they always, I loved playing with those guys and they enjoyed having us as opening band, but, but they weren't willing or maybe they weren't able to invite us into their circles. So we were never that close. It, it's funny you say that too, because you're the band, like you guys are the band that, people bring up as the only band that kind of was there for a long period of it. Like, and you ultimately are the band that really defines California punk. Like I've had people from Sweden on and they talk about hearing your records and how that changed the entire course of like a section of popular music in Sweden is the influence of bad religion. So it's, it's amazing how it's, you know, the outsiders that wind up becoming the bands that <laughs> define something. Yeah, well, a lot of that has to do with uh, the interesting history of the band. See, for so part of that is due to our tenacity, because both Brett and myself, you know, uh, as songwriters, we never were satisfied 
and each album for us is kind of a work in progress, trying to improve or build upon the album that came before. So part of that is just is just us trying, you know, to to do better, irrespective of the album's success or failure. So for us, it was a personal journey, and the fact that we used Southern California motifs in our writing helped to then establish that sound as a lasting tradition. So I think what they're referring to is, yeah, it, it, Bad Religion was around for all of it. We just happened to be there for from the beginning, at least 1980, if you define that as the beginning. But, but we also constantly refined that sound. And then of course, Brett with his fantastic work at Epitaph was able to then put it into a package and you know was really good at disseminating those sounds to the rest of the world mm. but it's it i'm hard pressed to find a band in punk because believe me i th think about this stuff way too much um you know outside of you know like obviously the sex pistols and the clash and, and stuff like that other than bad religion that that has that much influence around the world where there's there are bands that hear you guys and that becomes the way they go. And obviously there are other bands that followed in your footsteps and kind of took that sound in Southern California as well. But like, it's really you guys that keep being brought up on this show. Like it, it, it is like a unique thing in punk rock, the influence you had worldwide. Yeah. Well, that may be testimony to another aspect of bad religions life. I mentioned Brett. There's also then Jay and, the rest of us in the touring uh, aspect, you know, we we tirelessly toured as well. So that might be part of the global reach of bad religion. That's just as important. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess going back to the more local reach of things, what were some of the other scenes you went to early on? I know you guys played San Francisco super early. Like, I think just after this EP came out, um, do you guys play San Diego early on? I was just kind of wondering what the other sense of California was at the time. To go to to Orange County, like even Orange County was a major excursion, and we didn't. You know, Hollywood was about twenty five miles away, and that that's sort of our backyard. But another twenty miles into Orange County was a rare thing for us. San Diego was one hundred and twenty miles, and then Las Vegas was you know seven hours. Yeah, that would be a. So it wasn't like in the East, you know, DC to Philly, hour and a half or two hours, DC to New York City, three and a half hours or whatever. You could actually hit a lot of cities if you were a band stationed in DC or in New York City. New York to Boston is a, what's that, three hours, four hours. Point is, in LA, you're sort of isolated. And then when you're in the Valley, you're even more isolated, mostly because to get an invitation, to go into Orange County was incredibly rare. We hardly ever played in Orange County because they had their own scene mm. and they just saw us as these weirdos from the Valley. I know it's kind of brought up in the book and it's also something that comes up on the show quite a bit is the idea of like the, the shift that happens where you have the punk kids, you know, there, the punk people, adults, I guess at that point, and they're kind of chased out or, you know, that's at least how it's put 
historically by certain some some of these punks by the hardcore kids coming in i just kind of wondered what your perspective was because it really seems like you guys are part of that first generation of hardcore kids definitely removed from the orange county stuff but i just was wondering what your perspective on that time was now when you say removed do you mean removed by time or by space by space yeah yeah because that was very frustrating to us we felt we were we were removed by space but not by time our mm. contemporaries, you know, a band that we did hang around a lot with and felt akin to was the adolescents. You know, we really got along with each other and we had similar styles of music and I felt like they influenced us in some ways, but they were contemporaries, complete contemporaries. And yet we could, it was a rarity to play a show with the adolescents. And that was because they were in Orange County they had a scene, they invited us, but the clubs wouldn't have us. And, you know, it really was a, a frustrating feeling that we couldn't get shows. And I didn't help that at all. You know, I didn't, I made matters worse <laughs> because, because <laughs> my entire summers were spent back here in Wisconsin. You know, and I spent my, my dad still lives in the house I grew up in. Mm. In, in Wisconsin. And uh, that's where I'm going traveling to today, in fact. And, um, and I would spend my summers in Wisconsin in the school years out in Los Angeles. So when there was an opportunity to go on tour, at least during those high school years, I remember we had this great opportunity to go on tour in the Western states with the adolescents. And I just had to say, no, nah, I'm going to go back to Wisconsin, hang out with my friends there, <laughs> go see my dad. <laughs> We're just kids, you know, I was a kid. When you were kind of going back to Wisconsin, were you seeing any, like, the bands like the Haskells or any of the stuff that was happening there? No, isn't that funny? You know, it's a great story that hasn't been told. I was just a Wisconsin neighborhood kid. You know, we I grew up in, in a suburb of Milwaukee called Shorewood, and my dad lives in Racine, Wisconsin, and these are just regular Midwestern neighborhoods. I had no interest in the music scene. <laughs> my musical life, you know, except for the early bonding that I did with my buddies in the Midwest over prog rock, we had no interest in going to punk shows. In fact, I think I went to a Yes concert. Oh, and I saw the car, and I saw the cars at the Milwaukee Mecca Auditorium, you know, yeah, uh, in 1980. And it's like, or that was probably 79. I had no interest in going to the punk clubs. And at the same time, you know, there were... You know, Kreutzen was playing and bands like that were, were making names for themselves, but I wasn't interested in going. And then I actually even went, when college started, I went back to University of Wisconsin at the same exact time that Milo from the, Adel uh, Milo from the uh, Descendants? I didn't even know he was going to Madison. You know, <laughs> I was there at the same exact time on campus. We were both biologists or biology majors. We, I never talked to him once. <laughs> it's just, it's like I was, you know, I was doing Wisconsin things. Well, it seems like it would be a great kind of challenge for both for both parties or both camps, I should say, to renew their love of punk rock and get back together refreshed and renewed after the summer. I guess they'd go to clubs and hang out. You got to ask them what they did. That's a really good story to find out. What the hell did you guys do? And Greg would go back to Wisconsin for the summer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm telling you, that's also part of our success story. I think, you know, our long-term success, 
it's kind of that helps with the relatable quali qualities of bad religion. And a lot of people relate to us because we have very diverse and interesting lives outside of the band. Yeah, like I think it's another thing that's amazing is the fact that, like, as you're kind of saying, it's like it's a band that you know, because you guys are all seem like different people that converged at this time and then grew to be different people, but somehow still find the love of the band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the band is a band is as much a part of our lives as anything. So, you know, if we we love life and we love living, um, the band experience is, is just so unique and uh, privileged. Yeah, we're just we all feel privileged to be part of it now. It's like a family as much as any of our uh, immediate families, you know, it's and that comes through, I think, in our when we go on stage, we show that. Um, I'm going to jump way ahead now, because honestly, Greg, I could punish you forever. And when this book's back, will you come back for a part two? Oh, yeah. Yep. Well, before I let you go, though, I got to ask you about the Noam Chomsky split. You know, I think that's such an important record in punk because I really think that record really crystallized the idea of of the rhetorical being part of the actual, I don't know, factual in a lot of ways. And, and the idea that we were, you know, part of a, a, a world, you know, in punk rock. And I think that split is, is really important. And I just wondered how that came together. Well, I think it came together because... Uh... We had this academic reputation, right? I mean, there's not many bands that had a member, well, a singer who is a graduate student, and and so I think the academic connection was was there. And I know that for years, Noam Chomsky's secretary, or she's she became his assistant, his personal assistant. For years, she was trying to get me and Noam do a public uh, spoken word thing. Um, I know that because she told me it was true. You know, that was she, one of her missions is to get, I guess she's still on it, but it's <laughs> not going to happen now. But but she was always trying to get us to do spoken word together. And then someone at, I believe it was Maximum Rock and Roll, but it may have been someone else who uh, must have talked to her, you know, and they were going to get Noam Chomsky anyways because the war you know, was declared and they wanted to get Noam Chomsky's input. And for all I know, it may have been her who mentioned, you know, bad religion, but I'm not sure who it was. But of course, the, mo the moment I heard about it, I was very eager to do it. And Brett was eager as well. Mm -hmm. Um. The other uh, thing I wanted to ask you about is the Back to the Known show. It's like the, the I guess it's like the comeback show after Into the Unknown that you do. And it's, there's a video of it. It's an incredible video. And I was just wondering if you had any memories of that show because it's, it's one of my favorite live videos to watch. <laughs> I had no idea that's what it's called. I, I think that's I that might be me just putting the name on it. I don't mean to <laughs> christen it that. Yeah, there's a there's a ton of footage out there, and uh, I don't. I gotta maybe I'll disappoint you when I tell you I don't remember it all. But it's like we played thousands of shows. It seems like, and I can't I can't really stand to watch the old ones because I'm so hypercritical of myself and of the sound quality, and you know, and I I hear every mistake on stage and wonder why the hell did he play it like that? So it's like, I don't look at it fondly, but. 
the one I, it, maybe it was at the Olympic Auditorium that you're talking about. I think so. It's it's. I don't think Brett's playing. I think it's Greg. Is it's Greg's first show with the band? Maybe even. And was it on a big stage or a small stage? It looks huge in the video, but huh. I, you know, that could be the perspective. Yeah, I think it was probably Olympic. Yeah, probably the Olympic Auditorium. And uh, some of those Olympic Auditorium shows were right when, right when sort of the, you know, punk was starting its resurgence. And there were very few bands then left to, you know, make any, making any albums at all. There were, you know, we put out Back to the Known as a return to form, and uh, it was it was well received. But you know, most of the it was also a pretty dark time for punk because a lot of what it what punk became at that time was a lot of drug-addled, homeless teenagers. You know, and mm. people trying to recapture the glory days and people who believed that it was a, a scene that was typified by violence and all that shit, you know? So those were some unhappy crowds, you know, they weren't as jovial as they are now. And I always tried to distance myself by cracking jokes on stage, but in reality, it just was, I, I didn't feel a part of that community. I want to ask you also about the No Control of the Country Club show, which was released as a seven-inch on Nemesis. It may it's also come up on the show a lot because it's the one punk hardcore show that Jack Black, when he was on the show, may or may not have been at. He doesn't know for sure. There's a photo that appears to be him moshing, and he agrees that it is him <laughs> in the photo. But oh, we, that's hilarious. But we can't really he doesn't have very many recollections of it. He swears if he had seen you guys, he would remember. So um, but on that show, yeah. you, you guys were playing with visual discrimination instead and carry nation, which is you know, it seems like that would have been, you know, kind of like a comeback to kind of hardcore that was happening a little bit later. Uh, was that scene that you see yourselves as part of that scene or like or that as contemporaries or not contemporaries, obviously, but modern contemporaries at that time? No, because by then I was already in graduate school. And so I really just thought of myself as a developing front man who was using the skills of erudition and uh, lecturing to be a front man. And I really, you know, as goofy as that sounds, I'm just being honest with you and telling mm -hmm. you that's how I saw myself. And I did not associate I, I just couldn't find any common ground with people who I thought were just rehashing the, the punk singer antics of my earlier contemporaries, you know? So it, it might sound like I was, I'm not trying to be an asshole. I like these, I like the music, but I just didn't feel like we bonded on any level. And in fact, those singers a lot of them were younger than me so now i was sort of taking the role that keith morris was playing when i was a kid and first going on stage so i felt it was kind of had come full circle and i was sort of um acting as their uh role model in a sense it's so interesting too how it's like it always happens in punk rock like that, that's the natural life cycle and i guess the natural life cycle in life but like you know, you enter that scene, 
you know, and you feel like you're being disrespected by the older generation. And then you eventually become the older generation and you don't feel like you can relate to the people coming in. It's not necessarily like you're trying to disrespect people, but it's just there is a bit of a generational gap that happens naturally. That's correct. And there you've just touched on the greatest privilege of all, which I'm lucky enough to have received. And that is the honor of being able to write punk music, because if you can write punk songs, then you're relating to the younger generations of punks who come up. And that's been the only thing I've ever focused on in terms of relatability. So like people think that I'm off-putting or arrogant or, you know, any other adjective that's negative because I don't feel like hanging out with them. But the truth is I care about them deeply and it was reflected in the music that I write because I write that music for those kids. Uh, you know, I think a record that's been really critically reassessed in the last few years is Into the Unknown, you know, and I brought it up to Jay and Jay was very dismissive of it when he was on the show still. And I just wonder how you reflect on that record now, because I, I, I know a lot of people that talk about that record as being one of their favorite records in the catalog, weirdly, even though it's such a red herring. Yeah, well, I'm here to remove the red herring because it's a it's completely imbecilic to dismiss something that is a part of your past. You, you can say something was a mistake, but if you didn't play on it, to call it a mistake is kind of, um, you know, that's kind of, that should be highly questioned. That should, that's, that's highly suspicious, okay? So you can have an opinion of it, but as someone who produced it and created it, I would like to remove the red herring officially because you're not the first person who said it. A lot of people really like what's going on on that album. Mm -hmm. And even though the album did not succeed commercially, and even though the album has moments that are embarrassing, what, you know, what 17 year old doesn't have embarrassing moments in his life. Right. So I'm not going to try and say that, everything on that album is spectacular but it limits someone's ability to enjoy the album if you make them feel stupid for liking it and if someone likes the album and likes what's going on there we should honor that and in fact i think jay's had a change of heart to some degree because in our latest online streaming event which came out last month we play some of the songs off of Into the Unknown. <laughs> we try to, now look, I, I felt weird playing them. You know, it's, it is weird to play that music for sure. And I don't even know what genre it belongs in, okay? But, but it is cool that the band is willing to, to honor the, the songs and to make the, the fans who like it, make them feel good about the fact that they like the music. And mm -hmm. sure, I mean, that was an experiment by a couple of teenagers who had, a, had great success writing the album before it called How Could Hell Be Any Worse? So Brett and I thought we could just write anything and it would be embraced. <laughs> <laughs> so you learn, by, you know, you learn by doing. And uh, the fact is we didn't have any commercial compass on, on what, you know, we weren't, we weren't strategizing as a band like, this will be a commercial failure or a commercial success. We weren't even thinking like that. We were thinking about artistic and interesting ways to stretch the genre. And 
sure enough, it was meant to be into the unknown, but it was kind of uh, into oblivion because nobody nobody liked it at the time. They wanted they were expecting a follow up to How Could Hell Be Any Worse, and they got this really bizarre album that is very musical, but it's not easy to put your finger on. Yeah, like I think if it wasn't you guys and if this was just like a record by an otherwise unknown commodity, it would be kind of heralded as this weirdo cult classic now. Yeah, that's I bet you're you're right about that. But the guy, um, Greg Shaw, who owned Bomp Records, uh, Greg, Greg Shaw said something great about it. He said, guys, you know, and, and by the way, we didn't have any idea who was going to release this album when we recorded it. It wasn't necessarily going to be on Epitaph. Because we were Epitaph wasn't really a company back then, mm-hmm. you know. It was 1983. We had just put out a self-titled and self-released EP, and then an LP based on a loan from Brett's dad. So it wasn't a it wasn't a record company, but we were sh- sort of shopping it around. And Greg Shaw from Bomp Records said, "You know, guys, I just I think it's a little too early." And what he meant by that, he clarified it later, and he said that album was about a year and a half before REM and you know, it could have probably fit into a different slot of music if it came out a little bit later, like you had just indicated, you know, it may have fit nicely into college music or something. I don't know. Remember college rock, like college rock was a thing. So, but the fact is we were still bad religion. So we weren't ready to like change our, you know, our interests, even though we were willing to stretch, try and stretch the sound of bad religion, we were still, we still loved punk music, but uh, it just didn't work. Whatever we were attempting was a, was a commercial failure. But the fact is it was not a musical failure by any means. It's a musical album and uh, it's somewhat interesting to listen to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and as you're saying, it's like, a bunch of kids making it which makes it even more cool you know it's 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 something that and every band needs that in their catalog every band needs that record that people can come back and be like oh this is the cult classic in the uh in the repertoire yeah yeah the lost album in the uh in the discography <laughs> well this has been an incredible chance to get to talk to you greg and i and i promise you i cannot wait for this book to come out so i can pour through that and have you back for this part two well, thanks for having me. I appreciate the uh, opportunity and uh, good luck with the editing. I hope the uh, sound quality is okay. I think we made it work, Greg. Thank you for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Greg already has a return date when this book comes out. We are we are already locked in for that. Thank you again to Christina for making that happen. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. I'm, I'm, I'm super stoked. I got to do that. Speaking of being super stoked, let's keep, let's keep the dream episodes coming, coming up in a few short days on turned out of punk. Another person that I've always wanted to have a sit down conversation with from the band, the zero boys, Paul Maharan joins me. And you know, if you're, if you're familiar with the zero boys, you know, they're one of the greatest punk hardcore bands ever of all time. They're, you know, I, I put them right up there, right up there. One of my top five bands ever. And also he is a legendary record producer and played in a bunch of other sort of lesser known, but equally kind of awesome bands like D 
dandelion abortion. Check out the dandelion abortion footage over there on the YouTube. They did a public access show. And by God, that is that is my new favorite discovery. All right, that is coming up once again in a few short days. That's it for the show, everyone. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous people matter. We need to protect trans kids. We need to help trans people protect themselves. We need to stop hate and violence towards Asian people and just hate and violence towards people that just believe in different faiths. You know, this is ridiculous. We just basically just need to cut this bullshit out. This is, these aren't political issues. These are just human basic rights issues, you know? So get informed, you know, get involved, go out there and, and look into what's happening in the world. And if there's organizations or there's things happening that you want to be involved in, get involved in it. Um, and just basically, you know, fuck fascism. That, that's, that is a bullshit path. That is a bullshit path. Um, uh, go and do something creative for yourself, you know, just go out there and, and, you know, start, start a band. You never know where it takes you. You look at, look at Greg started this band way back when 40 years later, you know, he, he influenced the entire, you heard me on that show. The, the course of Swedish pop music, you know, popular music was influenced by his band. So, you know, what, who knows what you're going to be able to do? You know, he doesn't even have to be that bold. Just maybe draw a picture. Just try and do something creative. It'll help. Speaking of helping, if you want to try it, meditating seems to help with my mental health stuff. And maybe it'll help with yours. I didn't believe in it. And here I am extolling its virtues to to strangers. So that is a convert. You know, I guess that you describe me now as being kind of a convert to that thing. But just try it. Who knows? Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. Uh, sign your organ donor cards because you don't need those organs when they come for them. And they can give someone else like a whole new lease on life. So it's like a, a final gift to the world, you know, just here you go, world. Take my guts. And uh, that's it. Stay safe. Uh, wear a mask. Definitely wear a mask. And uh, I will see you on the next episode, which is a doozy. Man, we're, we're keeping the hits going.